Um, here's where we are. We've been studying Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel begins with the parents of John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and uh, they have little John, and then there's uh, Mary and Joseph, and they have little Jesus. And then um, we look at Jesus in the temple when he is dedicated, but then last week we looked at Jesus going back to the temple when he was 12 years old. So he's growing up. And today we enter into uh, the full-grown uh, ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus. Now we're going to just focus on John's ministry today. But it starts in Luke chapter 3. And I just want you, as we read this narrative, notice... <clears throat> all the historical names that are mentioned here as we go. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Etruria, and Triconitus and Licinius uh, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, I pointed this out uh, last week. I'll say it again. Some people who uh, read the Gospels and want to say, well, come on, there's full of miracles and, and um, crazy stories about people being raised from the dead. This is myth. No, Luke begins his Gospel by saying, um, I researched this. I talked to eyewitnesses, and this is an accurate account. And boy, he goes out of his way here to tell us when John began his ministry. He names uh, seven, I guess you could call them politicians, to zero in on a very real time, in a very real place on the planet. If it was, if it was myth you would think he would want to distance himself from any traceable history. In a land far, far away. In a time unknown. Uh, but here, he zeroes in. It would be like if, if 30 years from now, someone wrote a little account of your, your time at Valleybrook, and you said, uh, Pastor Brian Smith preached on Luke's gospel. It was when Trump was in office, and uh, J.B. Pritzker had just been uh, put in as the governor of Illinois, and Rahm was the mayor of Chicago, and the mayor of Cortland was, does anybody know the mayor of Cortland? Was it? Um, <laughs> I don't think Maple Park does. <laughs> Russell C. Stro uh, Stokes. Everybody knows Russell C. Stokes. But, but it's, it's like uh, Luke is not just making this story up. He's embedding it in real history with real historical names. Okay, so that's just a kind of a, a free point right there that you get. All right? So then it says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. So now what, what Luke is doing 
is he's saying John the Baptist is, is this guy that Isaiah prophesied about. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Um, by the way, I do find it interesting that if you, if you wanted to start a religious movement, where would you start it? In a city like Jerusalem, right? He's out in the desert by the Jordan. He's in the middle of nowhere. It's almost like he's like in an abandoned cafeteria in the middle of a cornfield instead of in the city of Chicago. So God has his reasons sometimes for city ministry and other times for wilderness ministry. Okay? So he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, you know, what's, what's this about valleys and hills and paths being made straight? Well, imagine if Caesar were leaving Rome and he was going to come visit some town in Jerusalem or in Israel. Um, and you certainly, if you're the, uh, the king's entourage, you don't want his chariot to hit a rough road and fall into a pothole and he tips over and uh, that would be embarrassing. So you would send ahead of him uh, people to smooth out the rough places. Bring down the mountains, fill in the valleys so it is uh, uh, a smooth entrance for the coming king. In essence, that's John's job description. He's getting the road ready for the coming of the king. But he's not doing it with, with black top and, and shovels. He's doing it by calling the people of Israel to repent of their sin. Their hearts need to be brought low for the coming of the king. All right, so that's what's going on here. So his ministry is a ministry of a baptism of repentance. Repent, turn from your sin, turn to the Lord, and uh, show that you've done that by being baptized. And we'll talk about why that was so, uh, so important for, or so, so unique for Jews to get baptized. But here's what we really want to focus in on. So all the crowds are going out, and he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, which I always have to say it, he was the king of the seeker-friendly sermon, right? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? You're, you're calling us to repent. What's that look like? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. 
And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. All right? So, Here's what we're going to focus in on. I'm going to look at four words. Vipers, wrath, repentance, and fruit. Okay? Vipers, wrath, repentance, and fruit. So he begins with, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, if you read Matthew's gospel, the term, you brood of vipers, is directed toward the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Here in Luke, he directs it to everyone. Now, is that a contradiction? Well, no. If he, direct, if, if he said it to everyone, then he also said it to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so it's, it's not a logical contradiction. Right? And uh, he didn't just go out there one day. This was a a ministry that went on, so he, he may have said it more specifically to the Pharisees and the Sadducees one day and to everybody uh, in other, uh, other days. Um, but why is he calling them a bunch of vipers? Is he just calling them nasty names? You bunch of snakes. Or you know, could he have said, you bunch of skunks? You bunch of dirty varmints? Well, um, I think there's more theological significance here. Who's the ultimate snake? Satan. In the garden, we first see Satan. And God actually talks about the seed of the woman who's going to smash the seed or the head of the serpent, but he also talks about um, the seed of the snake, the seed of the serpent. Put that all together. Basically, you're either a child of God or a child of Satan. Okay, there are children of Satan. In fact, Jesus, when he's talking to a group in John 8, they, they, they're Jewish, and they go, well, we're children of Abraham. And he goes, you know, i tell you who your father really is. He says, you're, you're of your father the devil. Okay, so John wasn't the only one who said offensive things. Jesus is saying, you're children of the devil. Now, understand this. Every person on the planet is created in the image of God. Therefore, we have eternal value. There's a degree to which um, we and, and God, when he looks at any individual, can say, They are precious and highly valued and created in the image of God. Okay? There's another truth, though, and that is that in our natural flesh, we are in rebellion against God. In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh, so this is the unbelieving mind, 
is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now again, somebody will will always say, but I know these non-Christians at work or in our neighborhood who they are not professing Christians, but they're super nice. Not saying that, that, that children of Satan aren't super nice. It's just if you were created by God for the purpose of knowing him and loving him, and everything you do is to be motivated by that love, then when you do things that are even good in the eyes of the world, but they're not motivated by a love for God, guess what? That is rebellion. That is rebellion. Okay? Um, which is why everybody born into the world is a child of Satan, really. We have rebellious hearts. Therefore, what we need is a new heart. We need to be born again. We need to be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he has to open our eyes and open our hearts so we see our need and we trust in Jesus the Savior. Okay? Now, this talk of uh, being vipers and sons of Satan was extremely offensive to his Jewish listeners. Why? Because most Jews thought this. I'm a child of Abraham. God chose Abraham, chose the Jewish people. I'm part of that group. I'm in. I was born into this thing. I was born into the right group. And I practice the right laws. And we do the right religious stuff. I'm good. Um, John says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Don't, Don't play the Abraham card. Don't play the I was raised in the right church card. Don't play the uh, we have found the right denomination with all the right doctrine card. Okay. Don't say we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you God's able uh, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What's he saying? He's saying the Gentiles uh, uh, can be raised up and they can be true children of Abraham. You're relying on your bloodline. Means nothing. Right? So this was extremely offensive to his Jewish listeners. Now, John is saying this. Repent and submit to baptism. Now, Baptism, while it was practiced uh, in some ritualistic ways for cleansing uh, for the Jews, the, the main use up to this point was, was this. If you were a Gentile, a dirty Gentile, for you to join yourself to Israel, you had to be baptized. Do you hear what John is doing? He's saying to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Fellow Jews, you need to see yourself 
like Gentiles. And submit yourself, you bunch of snakes, to this baptism of repentance, just like the Gentiles. All right? So, there's the, the, the term viper. It means more than just you skunk. It has to do with the condition of the heart. Now, he goes on to talk about wrath. In fact, in uh, verse 7, he says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Okay? Now, I think we need to be careful when talking about the wrath of God. Because there are those who can talk about it in an almost gleeful way or an angry way. And I do think when we talk about the reality of the wrath of God, we need to keep something else in mind, and that is the heart of God, which is pictured by the father in the story of the prodigal son, who the minute the, the rebellious son turns, the father runs and embraces and forgives and puts the robe on and the ring on the finger and has the party, and he is thrilled to receive back his rebellious son. So please keep the heart of God in mind. But having said that, also realize the wrath of God is an undeniable theme of Scripture. And it is reserved for those who reject his love. Right? Let me, let me uh, raise and try to answer some objections that people might have to the concept of the wrath of God. Okay? Um, somebody might say, well, the fire that John is talking about here... Um, do we have some fire? Well, he talks about fire. Um, what, somebody might say, well, what if the fire he's talking about isn't the fire of hell? Maybe it's the fire of 70 A.D. when the Romans came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They burnt down the city. Josephus says 1.1 million Jews were killed and they burnt the temple. Maybe that's the fire John's talking about. Well, if you keep reading in this section, we'll look at this next week, his, Christ's winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Um, I think 70 AD has gone out by now. The, the fire of this wrath is unquenchable fire. Somebody might say, well, maybe the fire is eternal, but those who are punished in the fire burn up. That's a, a thing called annihilationism, where uh, hell is not eternal. Well, hell's eternal, but the people who go there go out of existence. Okay? 
problem with that is in Matthew 25, he talks about the sheep and the goats. And these, the goats, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's not just that the place is eternal and the fire is eternal, but the punishment is eternal. And for punishment to be eternal, the punishees need to be eternal. Now, somebody might say, well, well, maybe the fire is just symbolic. Well, actually, I don't have a problem with it being symbolic. Here's the problem, though. Most of the symbols in the Bible point to an even greater reality. Or in this case, an even worse reality. So whatever the fire and the worm and the darkness symbolize, the reality has to be even worse. Okay. Somebody says, well, maybe this is all scare lingo and everybody in the end gets in. And um, we have Jesus saying, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will... I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Another objection. This is not a biblical objection. This is a... Uh, A tone or an association objection. Hey, pastor, if you preach about hell, don't you run the risk of being associated with the fire and brimstone, hell and damnation group that can be kind of crazy. You don't want to be associated with that group, so don't go there. Well, you know what I've realized after speaking and teaching? Everything I say runs the risk of being misperceived. Everything I say, every word I say, uh, somebody can say, well, that reminds me of this group over here. You must be one of those. Or you said this, that associates you with this group. And... Uh, I guess I could live in fear of that, and I try to watch what I say, but I also have to remember that while I want to be careful of, uh, uh, of my audience and who's listening, ultimately, here's who I have to give account to. Paul said, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Why? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I, you know, ultimately, I, I care about you. I love you. I also want to be able to stand before God and say, I did tell them about wrath. 
and hell. Right? Now, um, having said all that, I do think we need to be much more reverent about the reality of eternal punishment. We shouldn't talk about it with glee. I told you the story before. The church was looking for a new pastor, and they had two guys come and preach. Somebody was gone, and they said, what did the first one preach on? Oh, he preached on hell. What did the second one preach on? Well, he preached on hell. Why would you go with the second guy? Because he preached with tears in his eyes. Right? I think we can be so casual about wrath and hell and even wish it upon people that don't fit into our group, our political group, our religious group, our ethnic group. Do you realize what we're talking about here? Could there be anything worse than eternal punishment under the eternal wrath of God? And by the way, if let's say you've kind of drifted through life and you find yourself in this sermon and you've never thought of hell. Just think about it. Meditate on it. Is there anything more important than making sure you're not going there? Right. Now, um, rather than us looking at Scripture and saying, I don't know that I get this wrath thing and this hell thing, therefore it's not part of my picture of God, I think the more submissive thing to do is to say, like most things with God, I think he knows more than I do. Therefore, rather than me adjusting Scripture to what I want, maybe I need to adjust my view of God to what he has revealed. You know, I think a lot of us would say, well, come on, my sin's not that bad and God's not that holy. And when we read passages like this, I think we should say, if hell is real, I must have no clue how holy God is or how rebellious my heart is. So, John warns about the coming wrath. Now, he calls them to repent. Calls them to submit to baptism as a picture that they have repented. Now, let me just theologically say it again. Water baptism does not save. Thief on the cross did not get baptized. He didn't get immersed, sprinkled, infant baptized. He was saved by faith alone. Okay. But here, John is, in essence, saying that a fruit, a result of true repentance, is that you will get baptized. Okay. Now, sometimes 
the scripture, when it comes to repentance, sometimes the scripture calls the sinner to believe. Other times the scripture calls the sinner to repent. And while those are not the same thing, they are different sides of the same coin. In other words, you can't believe without repenting, and you can't repent without believing, when we're talking about true saving faith and repentance. So, sometimes Scripture uses shorthand, repent. Other times it uses the shorthand, believe. But repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin. Let me give you a, a definition. Um, Theopedia, kind of like Wikipedia, but with a theological content, says this. Repentance is the God-granted attitude. And notice, God-granted, um, unless God is changing your heart, it's just a New Year's resolution where you're producing, right? you feel bad, so I'm going to try harder. But that's not the same thing as true repentance. Repentance is the God-granted attitude of having sorrow for personal sin and the turning away from it toward a new life. If one has a true sense of guilt, that will result in the outward hatred of sin. If one has an understanding of God's mercy in Christ, that will result in a lifelong endeavor to be more like Christ. So it's, it's not just a call to feel bad. It's not just a call to try harder. It's not a New Year's resolution. When, when I became a follower of Christ, 19 years old, when I believed in him and repented, I didn't know all the theology, but I did know one thing. This wasn't just a momentary emotional experience. I knew I was entering into and I wanted to enter into a new life-changing, lifelong relationship with Jesus. I was turning to him. Okay. John is calling the people to turn from sin to God, to Christ. Right? And it's more than just a resolution. So... He adds to it fruit. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, theologically, it is really important not to confuse the basis of our salvation, Christ's death on the cross and our faith in him, right? The, it's important to separate, I should say this, distinguish the basis of our salvation from the result or the fruit of our salvation. Now, I, they can't be separated in real life, but theologically we have to say we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And the resultant change, then, is the fruit of salvation, not the cause of salvation, not the basis of salvation. Why is it important 
to make that distinction. Three, three quick reasons. One, making any work or fruit the basis of our standing before God says this, Jesus didn't pay it all. It robs Jesus of glory because you've got to add your fruit to that pile. Secondly, it lowers the standard of God's perfect holiness because now we can combine Christ's perfect work with our imperfect work. Right? Thirdly, if, and I don't know how many, how many people have thought this through, but in reality, it, it places the believer in a state of continual fear. How do you know if you've done enough works? How do you know if you have enough fruit? So, I've said this before, any works-based system produces either arrogance or fear. Or, in some cases, both. One day, you're, you had your quiet time and you tithed. So you're feeling pretty good. The next day, some bad word comes out of your mouth. <gasps> Well, you're basing your standing before God on your fruit, not on the root. Okay? So, even John distinguishes between repentance and fruit, which is the result of that repentance. Now, having clarified that, the full teaching of Scripture is that salvation is by faith alone, but never by a faith that is alone. Why? Because true salvation involves a heart change, a divine heart change. It is not just a human-produced thought. It is a heart change from God. Okay? Now, while John could have spoken about a million different fruits of repentance, let me ask you if you can detect something that's in, that, that, that all three of these things have in common. He, he gives three, uh, three fruits of repentance. What do they all have in common? And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do Likewise, what would you say the essence of this is? Charity, um, giving, right? It, you, your relationship with your money now changes. Before it was a taking, a keeping, a Scrooge attitude. Now it's a, that person's in need. Let me give to help them. So giving, all right, then, then there's another group. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. What does this have in common with the first one? Money. Hey, if you were a tax collector, that's a pretty good gig. You pretty much decide what you need, new chariot, new horses, swimming pool, and then you just went out and raised your tax rate and threatened people to go to jail if they didn't pay it. 
right? Um, so here, the second thing is in relation to money, and basically what he's saying is play fair. Fair day's wage for a fair day's work. Right? Then, soldiers. Soldiers also asked him, and I, I find it interesting, he doesn't say, soldiers are incompatible with Jesus, therefore get out of the army. No. But while you are a soldier, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. So remember when Jesus was crucified and uh, the soldiers are, uh, Jesus falls and uh, they grab a guy named Simon from Cyrene and make him carry Jesus' cross. That's an example of the power that a soldier had. Carry this guy's cross. Carry my equipment for four miles. Give me what's in your wallet, because I have a sword and you don't. Um, so I, I would sum this up as related to money, but be content. But isn't it interesting, of all the things that John could have talked about, all three of them, all three fruits of repentance, deal with money. Why? Well, nothing really reveals our relationship with Christ quite like our relationship with our money. Right? A new relationship with Christ will change your relationship with your money. So let me, let me close with this. Uh, the story of Zacchaeus. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He not only got his cut from the people he ripped off, but he got his cut from the others in the pyramid. Okay? And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Short guy. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And i got to say it, I always use this to say, this shows that when we go out to lunch, you pay. <laughs> Having lunch at your house. <laughs> so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Now, notice, Jesus says nothing, or nothing is recorded, I should say. We, we don't know what they talked about. But here's what happens. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And I, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Now what's going on here? He bought his way into heaven, right? This is the stairway to heaven. He bought uh, a place at no. No. He put his trust in Christ and immediately 
his relationship to money changed. Right? A fruit of salvation affects the way you manage your money. Right? Jesus basically said it this way, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Right Now this is the place where it would be great for the pastor to, to pull out the tithing... Uh, <laughs> But, but you know what? I, I don't want you to tithe out of guilt manipulation. I don't want you to tithe out of, well, I guess in my list of Christian duties, I better do this. I, I want you to have your heart so changed by the Lord that your, your money is now a tool to use to support the kingdom of God and advance the kingdom of God. And the fuel is not the rule. The fuel is the Lord. Right? Remember, the heart of the Lord, He's the prodigal father. The minute you repent, He's willing to run to you and embrace you and welcome you. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for men like John the Baptist who can be perceived as crude, but I see him as speaking truth with passion. And Lord, I pray you would take these words and his words, apply them to our heart. If, if any of you have, have never opened your heart to Christ, meaning your repenting of your sin and receiving Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. Open your heart to Him. Ask Him to come in, to cleanse you of your sin, to change your heart, to make His desires your desires. And then, Lord, I pray that you would produce much fruit in each of our hearts that glorify you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.